Hi, it's Chad Griffiths. I'm the host of the Industrial Real Estate Show, and I'm glad you're here. After you listen to it, please consider leaving a review on our Apple or Spotify page and check out any more episodes to see how you can learn more about the industrial real estate market. Hey, Ron, good to see you. Thanks so much for joining me on the show again. Likewise, Chad, always a pleasure. So here's an interesting thing that I wanted to talk about, and I think it's on a lot of investors' minds right now, is investing in in syndicates. So there's a GP, there's a sponsor of the deal, and they're raising money. They're going out to investors who would be limited partners in the in the property. But we're also at this time right now where you can get a T-bill. I think I saw that you can get a T-bill, like a six-month to a year T-bill over 5% right now. You could even get a five-year T-bill over 4%. So in the context of all these choices where all of a sudden investors, call it a year ago, if an investor wanted to just put money into a safe investment, they might get 1%. Now they're getting 5%. And real estate investors haven't increased their return to investors by that same spread. So in the context of everything that we've seen lately, some of these uh, real estate, big real estate syndicators that have gone bankrupt, absconded with money. And then on top of it, they're only offering, call it like a 5% pref on their return. Let's tee it up right there. First of all, what what do you think is the current landscape of the real estate syndication market with all that in, in play? Real estate syndicators going bankrupt and then T-bills offering comparatively good returns. Yeah, well, I think it's a really relevant conversation because absolutely right now there is concern there the the market is tighter for capital raisers uh, as well as the number of people who are interested to invest money as an LP and that causes you know just just problems throughout but we're seeing a longer and more difficult uh, capital raise you know equity raises um, there is you know we had Apple's way we had Nightingale which was the big crowdsourcing um, they look like they absconded with about 75 or 80 million dollars. They raised money from, they took lender money, they didn't close on the property, and the money is missing. So very concerning there. Um, and and at the end of the day, you as a, as a steward of your own capital have to understand what is your risk-adjusted return. I think people talk about it, but it hasn't really meant anything until now when it moves and when it changes. And so, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right on the difference between fixed income, risk-free, you know, I'll call maybe a CD, you know, my, my bank, I've got uh, some money in like six, uh, six or eight month, 5.2%. So hmm. that's, that's pretty risk-free. I'm not putting millions. I just have a few hundred thousand in that, but that is absolutely part of my investment allocation is putting a portion now in risk-free, uh, still liquid, still planning to invest that if there's an opportunity, but you have to mix that in. And so as a result, there is less LP capital flowing into the real estate deals that are that are coming up for offerings. You bring up a really good point there. And that's something that I think we should explore a little bit further is how I don't think enough LPs fully factor in the risk that comes with investing in an LP. And I'm I'm pro real estate syndications. I'm an LP in a couple of other uh, projects with syndicators where I've put my own money in. I'm I'm pro investing in real estate in the long term, but I also think that there is a huge risk in underappreciating the 
potential for things to go wrong versus a CD where you're at 5.2% or a T-bill or whatever it is, those risk-free investments, if you're in that 5% range, it comparing that to a real estate deal where chances are they're leveraging that deal as well. So call it, someone goes out and raises money to buy a $10 million building. They raise a bunch of capital. Maybe they raise three and a half million dollars. They get debt for six and a half million. If in the circumstance that the real estate market drops 10%, now all of a sudden that property is worth $9 million, but you still have that six and a half million dollars. So somewhere along the way, a million dollars just evaporated. And Given enough time, I'm a big believer long-term real estate investing is is the, the way to go. You you can't ride these temporary fluctuations. But if that was sustained, or perhaps even the market dropped 35% and all the equity was just wiped out, at least on paper, compare that to investing that money into just a CD or a T-bill. That's a considerable amount of risk <clears throat> that people are taking by investing in it. So given that context... What would you be saying either yourself if you were evaluating an, uh, an LP opportunity right now or to uh, uh, someone that you would be advising? What, how do you factor in that insane amount of risk compared to just earning 5% safely right now? Yeah, so so absolutely. You know, the the method that <clears throat> I use when I'm evaluating LP deals and and you know, I get the whole spectrum of LP. We've got some sophisticated shops doing, you know, their their 14th deal full cycle, that sort of thing, 2 million square feet, um and then you still got some syndicators that are starting off. Uh what I use is like just an expected value. Uh, and the expected value approach or method, all it requires is you take some of the risk-free spectrum and you say, what is my return on a dollar? And let's say it's, you know, five cents, 5% there. And that becomes the hundred cents on the dollar. We call that the risk-free return. And then as you move down the spectrum, you have to be compensated, in my opinion, such that the expected value of putting money into a, a somewhat risky, more risky real estate investment, the expected value of, call it a, we have a 90% success rate, 85% success rate of $7. Let's see what that math works out to. Maybe we can do a graphic. Um, becomes $5.95. And so in that scenario... I, I'm willing to take a risk-adjusted return on real estate, assuming you know we, we factor in things like liquidity, uh, diversification, overexposure in a single asset class. But beyond all of those, you know, if we're solely talking about the the risk, I use expected value, and and if I put five percent T bill, my my expected value we'll call it is five five dollars five dollars, you know, on on a hundred. Whereas your your LPs, they're up there. They're they're going to be ninety percent, eighty five percent. Maybe if you're in, um, you know, not a recession, you're in Class A luxury multifamily, you might need to discount at a seventy percent rate. In which case, getting uh, getting six dollars return, six percent return on a on a multifamily, a luxury multifamily, the expected value isn't there. And so that's one approach. That's how I do it. Um, I, I try to make all the other things equal, but in terms of pure return after the end of a period, whether it's three years, it's five years, what's my expected value? Um, and you know, go with the, go with the highest one at that time. 
Yeah, and, and there's usually two elements that an investor will look at. They'll what's their preferential return that they're expected to get throughout that holding period, and then what's their split of any windfall. And presumably, people are buying real estate to either add value or or just to see the value appreciate with with time. So there could be a split on that. So it, in my mind, it would be crazy <clears throat> for someone, and we've talked about a guy like Grant Cardone uh, in the past, which was always insightful. I, I think you and I both share the opinion that he's a brilliant marketer, top of his game in terms of how efficient he is at marketing and inspiring people, but neither one of us would touch any of his funds. In my, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this because even the last time we talked about this, more time has passed. In my mind, have you seen that Twitter clip? Sorry to interrupt. There, there was a Twitter clip where he's talking about debt service coverage ratio, and he's like very happy with 0.6. I saw a meme about it. I haven't seen the original. The original. I mean, there's these clips going around, and and what the guy is saying is just it's impossible. He's using all the buzzwords and he's using CRE vocabulary, but at the end of the day, I try to sit there and think about. It. I'm like, what is he saying? It. It doesn't make sense, but to your point, the marketing says, "Don't worry, I know what I'm talking about. You're a, uh, you know, an uneducated LP. Just give me your money, and and I'll invest it." And that's so. what he seems to feast off of. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up because I did see a meme on that, and I thought it was just someone making fun of of Cardone when, when if he actually said a 0.6 debt service coverage ratio. Yeah, it was the clip that I saw was something about interest. Uh, and like interest rates and, and the relative impact on his DSCR is like, well, you know, my cash flow is still the same regardless of this. And uh, but he's like, but you're not concerned about it? And he's like, no, no, doesn't matter what interest rates do. And I was like, well, yeah. I'll find it. And if I can find it, it's going to play right now. <laughs> if, it if it doesn't play right now, then we're going to have to uh, we'll roll on with this. Uh, but on Cardone, if so, I, th I think with the one that we evaluated, he was paying a pref of 4.5%, uh, if I'm not mistaken. To me, that's absolutely crazy that somebody would lock up money right now as an LP investor in a Cardone fund for 4.5% return with, as you mentioned, you don't have liquidity, you're locked in for a long period of time, there's a considerable amount of downside risk, especially if any of the allegations against him are true uh, about him buying properties and then selling it to a fund for a markup. I don't know if that's been proven in court yet, but I know that there's people looking at it. But to take to invest in a fund right now where you're making less of a return than buying a T-bill and you have all this risk and you have illiquidity issues, that to me is absolutely crazy. So how many deals right now do you think are actually penciling where a prudent investor would say, I can get a 5% T-bill, I need my risk-adjusted return to be 10%. Maybe it's, maybe it's even less. Maybe people yeah. for that yield. Well, well, look, I'll take I'll take the Cardone investor position because I don't think you're giving them credit, and it's not it's not fair. They were investing, and they locked up a few years ago, one or two years ago. The T bill rates weren't quite there. We've had we've had a lot of increases since then. That's in the but last year. But what they didn't necessarily account for was the the T bill fixes at four percent. What is it likely to be across this horizon? And I don't know if they did the projections, but they didn't really think about what if the T-bill goes to five and a half. I'm going to look like an idiot locking in money at this pref rate. And again, I don't know whether they look at that, but I'll fight you on that, that 
at the time, I still think you have the benefit of hindsight to look back and say, okay, well, it's perfect. It's your job as a real estate investor, though, to analyze the full spectrum, you know, 90% of outcomes to the best of your ability. And this was an outcome that was probably likely, but not guaranteed. And they, and they just didn't account enough for it. But then when it does hit in that, you know, the, the wedge, this, this, the pie chart section, it's easy for us to come back and dunk on them and say, oh, well, you, you know, you look like an idiot, but, um, I'll, I'll, I'll say that. So just to, you know, show that we do argue about things. Um, well, I, I'm glad, I'm glad you did bring that up and that, and that you're right. And I'm, it's good that you do correct me on that because I, I would, the last thing I'd want to suggest is that somebody that did buy a Cardone fund or really any of these celebrity endorsed funds a year ago is dumb because I, I think that they do have a viable business model. I would be more towards the side of right now because I've, I've bought stuff in the past with the, that'd be like, man, that was, that was really dumb. I wish I hadn't bought that. So you're right in our, in our vantage point right now, we can look back or I can look back and say that was foolish that somebody bought anything a year ago when they could have waited till right now and got it there. Nobody's got that 2020 hindsight or foresight. So I totally get it. Uh, but right now, that's what I'd rather focus on. Is yeah. So my, back to your right question, now. what are the best deals available right now to LPs? And in, in my mind, no doubt, it's some form of new construction. Mm. Um, the, the development spread is a big uh, benefit, I think, for investors, you know, depending on what you're building. I, I, I don't love building more apartments, more 400 unit class A luxury with the dog wash and a dog park. Okay, no, I, I'm not I'm not advocating for that industrial builds, you know, new construction has slacked way down, but inventory is still being picked up. I I'm, I'm bullish on that. You know, God for, you know, luckily if you could get in on class B, uh, shallow Bay, light industrial contractor garages, those new construction debt costs are, are relatively low. Um, the, the spread between new construction and stabilized product is like nothing. I got quoted for some new construction at 9% and then my fix is seven and a half. I'm like, what the heck? That's, that's nothing. It used to be like a four point spread between construction costs at, you know, 7% and fixed at three, three and a half, something like that. But I think the opportunities lie in finding those developers who are already have the land, maybe at an attractive basis, but if they are able to continue with new construction in a, area that has demand, that's where you're going to get really good yield for just a little bit more risk. Um, so that's the opportunities, best opportunities for LP money right now. Yeah, that's a very good point. And it, it's hard getting any existing inventory to to pencil right now because there's a lot of sellers that are still looking in the rear view mirror and saying, well, the price should be mid 2022 levels, whereas a lot of investors are looking through the, the windshield and saying, yeah, and, and, they, and um, we're seeing, you know, COVID uh, stuff is, is finally easing. I, I get it. We've had some huge supply chain disruptions. We've, we've changed the world, all these things, but prices are coming down. You're able to get parts. Now we don't have this build, uh, like on the residential side, you don't have all of that demand sucking up labor, sucking up the trades, uh, concrete fuel, you know, all these, all these inputs for new construction are the demand has been sucked out from residential, uh, due to the interest rates. So the, to me, the supply chain and some of the costs of increase 
are easing. Uh, labor shortages on the trades is eased because of the lack of new construction for residential. Um, materials is, is, is still high, but it's coming down. We've seen the wood prices go up and down. Um, but all of those negatives, but now the cost of capital to me, hasn't quite inflated, uh, to, to reflect the risk. So it's a good time for new construction and, you know, want to say that, you know, I, I'm looking at a new construction project now for, uh, for some, some R boat and RV storage. Um, mm. So we're going to build some buildings, but it's basically metal buildings, um, just skinned, skinned canopies, but um, we'll have water and power and such. Um, so that's what I'm looking into because of all my bullish reasons. But <laughs> I always put, I always put my money where my mouth is. I feel like you do that too. If you say Prologis is, you get a thumbs up, you know, you disclose that you own shares of Prologis. I, I try to be as transparent as possible, and and I, I same as you. I've got money in every project that I've ever ever done, whether it's property that I own myself or uh, something that that I've invested alongside with partners. I've put money in every deal that I have. Uh, so two interesting stocks going on a bit of a tangent. So I mentioned uh, that Stag Industrial is one that I really like right now. They've got a pretty good portfolio of properties, um, and I think that they're going to be a takeover target, whether it's. Prologis, whether it's BlackRock, I think at some point they will be a takeover target. Uh, and their stock has actually gone up since I bought it. Uh, so since you did your video, so you should do a follow up of your own uh, stock forecast tips and see where you rank. I, I'm the worst stock picker. I, I'm pretty much on par with Jim Cramer. Like if there's someone could do an inverse chat and just do the opposite of what I do, and they'd probably actually fare pretty well. That's that's like one of the success stories. Uh, but I, I just I believe in industrial long term, and I think Stegg's a good one. Uh, I'm I'm gonna buy Prologis again too. They're hovering around 125, 126 dollars a share right now, and I think I'm gonna buy back in. Uh, they had a really good earnings report. They're they're working on marking all of their leases back to market. Uh, so they'll see a bit of a decline in vacancy, but I think that their net income is going to go up. So I do like Prologis as well. Uh, I, I, I'm curious to actually dive into the point you made about uh, the project that you're doing is let's switch hats for a minute and and you're now, let's just assume that you're raising money. Yeah. How would you advise a GP right now on how to actually raise money in this difficult environment. So absolutely. I think you need to be proactive and aware of what the investors options are and not necessarily to try to compete on what the strengths of the options are. So, so for example, keep using that T bill, keep using some of those risk-free, uh, you know, corporate bonds. I know that's what people are putting stuff into the CDs and say, look, you are putting your money, uh, almost call it guaranteed loss. Is if that's what you want to do, that's fine. But if you, I can't compete on a guaranteed return. But if I'm a GP, I want to focus on the upside. I want to focus on, you know, you you've got to constantly have your money making money, not just flat. And I would challenge my investors and say, are you so rich? Are you done making money that your only job is to preserve wealth, right? Which is very different analysis, very different risk profile as an investor. And it's to say those questions, because I think everybody that is interested in an investment would tell you, I'm not done making money. I'm still active. You know, you ask them these questions like, 
Are you too old now to analyze a good deal? Is your mind not as sharp as it was when you were younger? And of course, if, they, if they're talking to you, they think it's because their mind is sharp and they can analyze a good deal. So I would use some of these loaded questions just to get them saying, yes, yes, I want to do this. Yes, I want to take this risk because I may be 55 years old, but I'm not dead. I still have time to recover. I'm not an 85-year-old you know, retiree putting around playing pickleball. Get, get them warmed up to this risk-loving idea and that you're still young, you're 55, you got plenty of other assets, you know, you you know, this is a chance for a home run instead of preserving wealth. You're not just trying to preserve. And you can say, look, your value is protected in the dirt. Um, you know, a significant amount of equity is is just in buying the land. We've got a construction loan. The the critical things that um could sink this project are already pre-contracted, like purchasing some of the steel. Uh, doing the contra- concrete contract, stuff like that. And you say, look, I have mitigated a lot of the big risk, so you're going to get your money back. And in worst case scenario, you get your principal back. That's that's kind of how I would say if you're a GP, you've got to address um, why you're better than the alternative. But don't try to compete on risk-free. Say, look, there's risk out there. There, there absolutely is risk. But you're sharp enough to understand what we've done to mitigate that risk. You should invest in this because unless unless you're just trying to preserve your wealth when you're 85 or 80, you're still in the real estate game. You're smart enough to to understand the market demand and and look at plans and you know challenge underwriting assumptions. And as as a GP, I would welcome that. I I I think that those types of questions make you sharper, whether that person invests or not. So. So let's take the opposite side of that now. When when would you advise people to not invest in an LP? Or two two part question, maybe another loaded question. What should they be looking for and warning signs on why they should actually steer clear of an opportunity? Yeah. So one of the biggest things I get a lot of new construction pitches, and and I start to see it. I want to say in my inbox, I had like four for this week on just new construction. Um, the warning sign that I see, and I see it as a big difference, is is do you have the ability for the developer to, do you own the land? Can you close on the land by yourself with, call it, quote, developer equity? Um, and where what stage are you at in terms of the entitlements? A lot of the soft costs that could blow up a project, right? You don't get the density. You don't get the size. You don't get the uh, curb cuts or the uh, road access. These are huge issues that could, I don't say sink or swim, but they, they drastically change the shape of the project. You know, you've got a four or five acre site. Can you build 120,000 square feet or are you building 80? Both of those are still going to be profitable, but in different ways. Um, you, you know, the, the upside is just not quite there on the smaller on the smaller footprint. The better projects for an LP, I would steer clear of projects that don't have the land or don't have the ability to, you know, close on it. Uh, if they need your money to buy the dirt, you're not protected. If they don't have those entitlements, if they don't. If they haven't already engaged an architect and they can give you a site plan, if they can't give you maybe not MEPs, they you know they don't need full construction plans, 
but they need to have already engaged an architect and engaged the city, an engineer, on planning and zoning and saying, yeah, you know, this plan with this proposed density, parking spaces, uh, road access, turn lanes, deceleration, all that gets the green light from us. Those are the deals that I would take a second look at. But if somebody's coming to you trying to get money to even do that initial engineering, you, you know what I'm saying? It's like they need your money to get started. You've got zero protection and it becomes so speculative um, for no reason. That's not risk that an LP needs to take. Um, if you want to take that risk as an LP, go buy your own dirt. Go, go be the sponsor by yourself. So when you're looking at an, an LP opportunity, you've got to look at the sponsor. What's their track record or perhaps what's their plan if it's their first one? I Knowing that your risk increases as their experience decreases, we also have to under, do some sort of underwriting on the property to at least know that you're making an educated decision on this. So the, I think the property should be fairly straightforward. Someone needs to understand what's the property going to be worth, what are the costs, just a similar underwriting that a bank would do. You're You're yeah. essentially lending money to the to the GP, it's in the form of an investment. But if you look at it through that through that lens, then you do go through a similar type of underwriting process that a lender would. How do you underwrite in a sponsor? And it could be the first one, the first project that someone's done. It can be multiple ones. But how do you protect yourself from the fraud that goes on with some of these high profile cases, which are, are unique. They're not, that's not the norm. There's a lot of GPLPs out there, but the odd one does creep up. How do you protect yourself uh, with that with the GP? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Uh, it's something that I get asked a lot. You know, we review LP documents for, for potential investors. Um, and they always ask, you know, how do I protect myself? What, what would you look for? And, there's, I really have to break it down into two different camps. There's a, a failed investment where some projections didn't work out. Um, assumptions were not quite what they seemed. Uh, you know, management kind of missed some things and it wasn't as profitable or they lost money as predicted. That's, that's one set of quote unquote failures. And then the other side of the equation are, are, are fraud or bad actors where they, they abscond with the money, they self-deal, they, they pay themselves all these fees, you know, that's, that's a different camp. And so with the first one, you can create good checklists. You can create a due diligence process and just start underwriting the deals to see where you end up in terms of getting check marks on your checklist. So absolutely, just like a bank, you can start creating a checklist. You can run down A to Z, get all these uh, request pieces of information, see how quickly, see how uh, complete those pieces of information are, get the checklist, and that will protect you. By and large, most of the projects that are, are on the riskier spectrum and, and don't get your pass, right? They maybe need eight out of the 10 check marks for you to, to, to warrant looking forward. But if it's got seven or six, you know, you, you know there's some concern. On the other hand, Outright fraud or people lying and, and and theft, I don't think there's really anything you can do, at least from a legal or from a due diligence perspective. Because, you know, I'll tell you, a lot of these people that lost money, they met with the sponsors. These weren't just completely random internet people. People shook their hands. They looked them in the eye. They thought they had a good read on this person, and they ended up being wrong. 
So I, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe you do want to meet every single sponsor in person and, and do that test, but I will say it's not a guarantee and it's very hard to predict. I mean, uh, you know, Matt, what on, on, on Forio, he had 35 million and, and there is no way to stop somebody when he was forging PSAs, when he was forging the purchase, he was modifying the purchase price. He was, um, you know, creating documents for his investors to use and telling them to submit it to the bank. Um, that kind of outright fraud is just, is just impossible. I, I don't see how you can prevent that other than asking questions throughout the process, you know, hire a good attorney to review every document and we can sniff out things. But, um, again, unfortunately, you know, we didn't have any clients that, that invested. Um, so that, that's two very different types of risk. One that you can mitigate one that I think you can't, it's, it's just part of playing the game. If you're giving money to other people, you run that risk. And it does underscore just the importance of going back to that original thing we kicked off with this is that there is an element of risk. So that has to be factored in when you compare that to a risk-free rate is that there is the potential for that. I think it is remote. I, 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 I've been involved in <clears throat> GPLPs. I know a lot of syndicators. I don't know of anybody personally that's actually absconded with money and, and gone into this deep type of fraud. I personally don't. But these high-profile cases, as is often the scenario when you're dealing with with big numbers, is the media latches onto it and and they get uh, they get this villain persona that some the real estate investors just this shady operator and they're going to steal the money. It is a risk though, and and is rare and unique as it might be, I do think people need to appreciate that there's a risk. I guess this leads into the to the last question that I'd have for you is, do, what would you recommend or what would you do personally in terms of your percentage of your net worth investing in any one single deal as an LP? Yeah, um, I, I think my my check size hasn't changed that much um, from when I started, you know, even like, you know, a couple of years ago or, or five or six years ago. Um, I, I always do that um, to kind of mitigate. But so for me, my personal check size is called one to 300 K, um, you know, maybe a little bit more than 300 on the edges, but I've never done more than that. And even though I potentially could, I don't see a need even for me right now to increase it. Uh, even though, again, <laughs> I have a couple things for sale. I'll, I'll, I'll definitely have more than that. Um, but I don't, I don't see the need to do that. And, and I think that's good advice for everybody else too. Is don't you don't need to put more eggs into the basket. I would much rather have the diversification across a couple different asset types, different types of, of development. Um, you know, versus stabilized product, but that's my check size is is a hundred to call it three hundred, and that hasn't changed for me. You know, it's it's gone up and down depending on the size, the, depending on the investment. But I think that diversification idea is really important, and it's no different than stocks. I think anybody would be, uh, it would be imprudent. Is imprudent the right word? Is that I think so. 
Okay, we'll go with that. It'd be imprudent for an investor to put 25% of their portfolio in one stock, or at least it'd be ill-advised by most uh, financial wealth advisors. And it should be the same with real estate, is if you're investing in your own deals or you're investing as an LP, you really want to have a small percentage of your net worth uh, invested in any one deal. In the event that one does go sideways, just as a company could go bankrupt and and be delisted off the stock market and your stock goes to zero, just as that could happen, if you only have three, five percent, maybe ten percent in some scenarios of your net worth in there, while it will sting, it will not be financially detrimental. Whereas I, I suspect that there are investors out there who have a disproportionate amount of, of of their net worth invested in any one fund. And to yep. me that seems like probably the riskiest thing they could do. Yeah. I think, I think when you're starting off, you can do that to, to, to maybe place one bet at the above the 10% range at, you know, 15 or 20, but you have to understand it's, it's at a risk of loss and, and you should have other, other emergency funds. You should have other reserves that maybe are, are less liquid that are rolling over to be liquid. Uh, in the middle of that other investment, but yeah, I mean, three to ten percent is is you know no more than ten. I think is a great rule of, of metric. And yes, it does become more uh, paperwork. It's a little more complicated to keep track of everything. That's why you need good org charts. You need um, to understand every entity and what state they're formed. Uh, it's kind of embarrassing though. You can definitely be like, Oh, I forgot about that invest. I forgot that I had money over there. And then you get like, um, I'll get like a K one and I'm like, Oh yeah, forgot about that. It's, it's happened to me as well. There's one property that I own as a smaller, uh, property. I forgot that I owned it. And yeah, that's, yeah, I found, I reminded about it when I got a tax document. So no, yeah. exactly. That's what I meant. I get a K one in the U S we get a K one for distribution. I'm like, Ooh, Yeah wonder what's going on with that. Um, but yeah, so so at the risk of getting too many investments, when you've got like 20 different interests, it becomes a little bit of work to remember what everything is. And when something sells and then you roll it over or or you get, you know, get the cash and then you split it into two. And in your mind, you're still thinking of the one investment and you didn't realize you split it two. Um, yeah, it's, it's a good problem to have, but you know, for all those investors out there, you've got to make the first one and then you're going to have it snowball and, and do your due diligence and be sure it's a good one, but you're going to have these problems if you keep investing in real estate for the long term. I can't guarantee any short term outcomes, but I can almost 99% guarantee long term outcomes. Yeah, and it really does highlight a point that I always try to make is that real estate investing, no matter how you do it, is not passive. There's no such thing as passive real estate investing. Even if you are an LP, you've got to keep on top of all these things. You got to know what's going on. You got to remember when you actually own it, like this happened to you and I. You got to remember that you own all of these things. Uh, But it it does take an active amount of work. And it it doesn't mean that you're going and picking up rent checks or handling issues that come up, but you still need to be active in that process. So I think that's really worth highlighting on that. Uh, One last thing to wrap up on, uh, are you converting to be an Afro man Reacts channel on YouTube. <laughs> well, people have been asking me for updates, and I felt uh, I, I really wanted to do an update after you know I got to FaceTime with Afro Man in, in his house. It was kind of cool. We just we just Very chatted cool. about his campaign. He's running for president, um, and uh, yeah, I, I want to get him on the channel. He said he would do like an exclusive video with me, but um, 
No, it's, it's Bruce Rivers is his attorney, so I feel like it's the it's the YouTube personalities combining, and I just want to be there to document it all. Uh, what I would say is keep keep on them. Send them an email every week, and just like a kind email, like. Hey, Afrofan, yeah. I'd love to have you on the channel. Well, would any of these times work for you next week? Because yeah. I bet you'd be yeah. willing to do that. That first video you put out was was such a banger and it got such great exposure. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I was likewise, I was like, when's Ron going to do an Afrofan update? What's going on with this? The only way that I would even know what's going on with that case is by hearing it from you. So That's right. Uh, That's right. Yeah. Well, in addition to the Afroman Reacts, you've got some awesome content out there. I recommend your channel all the time. Uh, you're, you're a lawyer, you're an investor, you talk about this in great detail. So as always, I encourage people to check out your channel and and we will continue these conversations. I love just uh, jumping on a quick call with you and discussing topical issues. So appreciate your time once again. All right. Thanks, Chad. Okay. Thanks, Ron. Well, I hope you got some value from that episode. I always enjoy getting to speak with these guests. Again, if you got any value from this, please leave a review on our Apple or Spotify page and look to catch you in the next episode. Thanks.